Hello, lovely people. It is I, your host, Sunny, also known as Dynamic Symmetry on Twitter and Tumblr and many other places. And welcome to Keep Singing Podcast, the Rambling Dead edition. I am so, so sorry it's taken me so long to get another one of these done. Um, bunch of shit happened. I went to Wiscon. I came back completely wiped from Wiscon. Other things have been going on. I've started a new novella. God fucking help me. So I've just, it's been kind of difficult getting back onto a bit of an even keel. I really do still want to try and do this every week, so I'm going to try and kind of get back into it, but clearly this episode is up later than I like to do. I normally try to keep to like a Monday schedule. But you know what? This isn't my job. This is something I'm doing for fun, and you know, it should be fun. It should be fun for all of us, including me. So I'm, I'm not going to, if, you know, if it's okay with you guys, I'm not going to beat myself up too much about that. Although, again, again, I really do like to try to keep a regular schedule. So this week, wow, we're almost done with season one. We're covering Wildfire, the penultimate episode of season one. Before I launch into that, let me go ahead and do my Patreon spiel. If you're listening to this, if you enjoy it, if you want to help me keep making it, you can go to patreon.com slash dynamic symmetry. You can check out the stuff I've got there for rewards. If you want to give me a dollar or two a month, that's absolutely amazing. Especially those small dollar donations, they really do add up. A lot of us on Patreon kind of that's where the bread and butter is. Uh, so yeah, it, that's hugely appreciated if you want to do that. Those of you who are already doing it, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, something I did yesterday, just to give you a sense of the kind of stuff that I do, uh, for Pride Month, I did a reading of a story I did that has queer representation in it. It's a lesbian kind of fairy tale remix about a fair maiden and a dragon and they get together and they fuck up some nights, is how I think I phrased it. Uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to read. You know, I love reading and uh, everybody at a dollar up got to hear that. And that's the kind of stuff I try to do. Uh, so yeah, if that's the kind of thing you're into, think about slushing me a couple bucks a month. And once again, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. All right, let's go ahead and get into it. Okay, so I should say first off, this is one of my favorite episodes of season one for a variety of reasons. It's, it's something that I've really been noticing going through season one, and I've, I've talked about the problems I've got with it pretty consistently. This is honestly probably my least favorite season. Yes, it is, it is less my favorite season than like season six, which I did not particularly enjoy. Uh, I need to rewatch season six. I think some of that was personal reasons, less than the quality of the show itself. But in, in terms of the quality of seasons, people shit on season two. I'm actually a pretty big fan of season two. I think season one is overall the weakest. And in fact, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I was, since it got announced that, um, I still don't think it's been officially announced, but since it got announced that Andy is leaving the show, uh, I've been kind of hanging out on the Spoiling Dead fan forums, and I've been seeing a number of people waxing kind of rhapsodic about the Darabont era and being like, man, they they should have let him hang on to the show, or AMC should have done what they could to hang on to him and, you know, and, and, and not moved on to other showrunners. And you know what? Fuck that. Like, you can think whatever you want about Gimple, I think that the Gimple hate is ridiculously overblown and super peer pressure related and it's just something that people do now because it makes them feel good, not necessarily because Gimple's actually done anything particularly terrible. I think he's been a pretty strong showrunner overall, although I don't agree with everything he's done by a long shot. But Darabont 
And I'm saying this as somebody who loves a lot of the stuff that Frank Darabont has done. Uh, this is just not that great a season. Now, I still feel a tremendous amount of affection for it because it's where uh, these characters are all, you know, introduced. And I think that the premiere especially is an extremely strong episode. Um, and there's a lot of fun moments and there's a lot of great stuff. And, and I, I go back through it and I really enjoy it. But in terms of sheer quality, uh, consistency, I think that this is overall the weakest season. Not by a lot. But I would, in, in, in terms of objective evaluation of its quality, I think I'd probably put it at the bottom. Or at least it's in the bottom two. Which, somebody asked me to rank my seasons not too long ago, and that's not where I put it, I think. And, and again, I think a lot of that was just me feeling nostalgia for it rather than me actually objectively looking at its quality. Because it's, it's been a very long time since I went back and watched all of season one start to finish. But... There, there is a lot about this episode that I like, and I'll go into all of that, uh, and also some of the stuff that, you know, I think is kind of a continuing, continuing parts of, of the weaker elements of the show. Um, just to start with, there is one thing that this episode does that I think is really, really important, which is that it establishes very, very firmly and very clearly, right off, something that has become a guiding principle of the show itself which is the importance of funerals. The importance of funerals and the importance of memorializing the dead, even if there's no literal funeral. It's this show, in its very DNA, is the idea of how important it is to say goodbye to the people we care about and how important it is to remember the things that they meant to us. Uh, which is, and again, you know, another reason why if you're a Beth fan, everything about how that went down is just fucking bizarre and kind of offensive, unless you think that there's something else behind it. But this episode starts off with Amy and Andrea, which is it, one of the places in which I think that this becomes most poignantly apparent, because this is, I mean, this is the first main character. Amy never really was a main character, but, you know, for the purposes of season one, I think she kind of was. This is the first time we really say goodbye to a main character in a big way. And how it happens, I think, is is super interesting and somewhat problematic. Not in the social justice sense, but in, in the world-building sense. And I'll tell you what I mean. Something that I talked about in a previous episode in this series is how there is an element of inconsistency in how walkers and in how the transition from human to walker is dealt with. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean by that. In particular, what I was referring to there is the idea that there might be some remnant of the people that these things used to be in there, even after they turn. And I was speaking specifically in reference to Morgan's wife and how she seems to have some idea that this door that she's at means something to her. Like... That, and, and that there are people behind the door that she remembers, that, that she, some part of her knows that Morgan and his son are in there and she wants to get in there. Or at least something is bringing her back to it. She's not behaving in the typical Walker fashion. She's there kind of looking at the door in a way that really seems to indicate that there is some, there's some remnant of intelligence in there. There's some spark that remains. And I think you see that again with Amy. And this is, this is especially interesting and meaningful, I think, when you uh, bring it forward into season three, which I'll talk about a lot more when we get there. And the experiments that the governor is doing with trying to 
trying to retain slash reach the person who was in there once they become a walker, obviously because he's trying to save his daughter. And I think that we see something like that with Amy too. Um, I, I also want to talk about uh, kind of the logistics of turning in addition to everything else, but something that I really noticed when I was watching kind of the sequence of scenes with Andrea and Amy and, and the kind of process of saying goodbye to her is when Amy finally does turn again, like she's not behaving like a walker. She's not lunging up and trying to eat Andrea's face. She's lifting a hand and kind of touching Andrea's face. And I think that you could just interpret it as, well, she's just become a walker. So her body's still kind of coming back from being technically dead and into kind of walker death. And, and she's still weak and she's still, her, her eating instincts, whatever they are, haven't fully taken hold. So she's just kind of, you know, we're, we're not seeing any remnant of personality. We're, we're just seeing somebody who's not who's still kind of becoming a walker, I guess. You could totally interpret it that way. But I think that you could also interpret it a different way, especially if you think back to what happened with Morgan's wife. And I just, I don't know what to make of that. And and I, I regard it as very interesting. And I also regard it as a problem because nothing is done with it after season one, unless you count, again, the stuff that the governor's doing. Uh, at which point it's pretty clearly established that no, there's nothing left of these people once they turn. They're just walkers. So I, I'll talk about this again when we start getting to the CDC, but but this is this is one of the things that the show does in season one that I think is most potentially interesting and most potentially a problem. It, it is in fact, it could be one of the greatest strengths of this show in its first season, and it actually ends up being one of its biggest weaknesses, especially given what happens in subsequent seasons. So, so yeah, I just, I just I, that, that, that grabbed me, and it, it's still gnawing at me. I don't really know what to make of it, but I, it, yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but I think it's a thing. It's definitely a thing I took note of. And the other thing is, and, and honestly, I think the show has kind of been next door to explicit about the fact that it isn't being consistent about this, that there is no real hard and fast rule. But the, this show does not seem to know how long it takes for somebody to become a walker, from the moment of death to the moment of turning. And, and how long the... Well, no, I actually think... I think the length of time that somebody can be sick is a little more consistent because the, the the length of time it seems like Jim is sick, I think roughly matches up to the length of time that Carl is sick. I don't know. It doesn't seem so inconsistent there, but Amy's dead for a while before she turns. And other walkers, other people who die, you see it happen much more quickly. And I think that you could make a case for, well, you know, it's just highly situational and, and it's just, it's, it's, it, it takes longer or shorter depending on the state of the person when they die and depending on lots of things about the environment. And, and you could, you could hand wave that any number of ways you wanted to. And in fact, I am perfectly happy to hand wave it. It's not something that I, it's not something that damages my enjoyment of the show. But while I'm thinking about weaknesses in world building, it's something else that jumps out at me as a weakness, I think. Uh, and again, it's, it's something that I, I just I think is worth taking note of because it's, 
it is being revealed so directly in this episode because this episode is, I think intentionally, uh, dealing with death in such a direct and personal way. Um, it's, in, it's an incredibly touching series of scenes. Uh, it's, one of the things I think it does that's really cool is that it reveals more about the dynamics of the group. You know, it, it reveals, because it's a moment of really extreme tension and duress and uncertainty and grief and anger, uh, it reveals a lot about how these people are going to behave when pushed to their limits. And again, that's that's really cool, and I really like that. Where Daryl's concerned, it continues to be an issue. And I'll get to that in a minute. But um, it's just, it's really beautiful. Uh, they're really well-acted scenes. Laurie Holden, especially, I think just needs to get an enormous amount of credit. Uh, the, the, I, ah, see, this is where we start getting back into gender issues. I think that it would be very easy for the audience to interpret this as stupid, stupid levels of stubbornness on Andrea's part, like, you know, oh, by the way, I, I think you might have noticed there's not nearly as much birdsong. I didn't feel like lugging the laptop out to the patio, so we're inside today, but I've got the window open. So it, you, you, I think, could interpret Andrea's reluctance to let people actually put Amy down before she turns as, you know, her, her just being stupid and in denial and refusing to accept the reality of the situation. And in fact, I think that maybe in some ways it was kind of meant to be written that way, except the scene where Amy turns, I think, belies that because Andrea doesn't hesitate at that point. She, she really just wants to say goodbye now, her saying goodbye to her Walker sister is, you could argue that that's kind of stupid, but you could also argue that it's not if there's something of Amy left in there. So in fact, that scene is up to a tremendous, tremendously important difference in kinds of interpretation, depending on what you interpret some of the core elements of the world building in this thing to be. It's a complicated scene, and the ambiguousness of how it's written, well, I think depending on how clear you like things to be and, and how hard you like the boundaries of your world building to be, that could be a strength or a weakness. I'm actually of two minds about it. I uh, think that it's interesting, and I think that it's really well done. Uh, this, the scene where Dale comes over to talk to Andrea is also really great. Um, it's, I, I will always regard it as a missed opportunity that we never got to see their relationship go anywhere. Um, in particular, you know, we never got to see it become anything like it is in the comics. I don't know that they were necessarily headed in that direction. They were pretty obviously headed in a direction of forming a close bond between them. But I think it would have taken another couple seasons to really get there. So it's a shame that uh, the actor who played Dale ended up, you know, leaving. Uh, you know, all power to him if he didn't want to stay. But yeah, it's... I miss Dale. Dale's really good. There were times at which he was written in kind of an irritating fashion. But again, like, there are a lot of character inconsistency and irritation problems in season one and in, to some degree in season two as well. So... Yeah, but it's, it's a great series of scenes. I, I really like it. And I very much want to like Andrea. So, yeah. Oh, we're also kicking off this show's uh, thing for killing blonde women. So we got that going. Yep. Yep, black men and blonde women. 
not not good to be black men and blonde women and horses. You just don't want to be those in the apocalypse. Things just don't go well for you. Okay, let's talk about Daryl. Uh, let me have some iced tea. We got iced tea today, and, and then I'll talk about Daryl. So, Daryl, something that I have been kind of noting as we've been going along is that Daryl, they're clearly still figuring out what the hell they want to do with Daryl. Daryl is, uh, he's, he's emotional, he's impulsive, he's, he's not Merle. You know, the, I, I talked about how his, his reaction to anger ending up being tears. You know, initially he's violent, but then he just ends up kind of pulling it on himself and crying when he's feeling very strong negative emotion because he's still, I mean, he's a kid. He's, you know, there are whatever else you want to say about, and this is especially people who are kind of, you know, anti the anti-shipping him with Beth, you know, oh, you know, he's an older guy. He's like in, you know, he's, he's in his forties. He's probably not, by the way, Norman has said that he's in like his late thirties, I think. Um, but regardless, you know, he's like, he's like in his mid forties, he's an old man. No, he's not. He's, he's physically older, but he's very, very much a kid. He's deeply arrested in terms of development. And he reacts to intense emotion as a kid would. And one of the things that that ends up meaning is that he's super impulsive, but he's, his impulse to violence is something that I, that, that is not consistently written in season one. I think, I think by season two, they've got it down and, and you, you have a much better sense of how he is with that. But in, in season, God, in, in season one, and in this episode in particular, where he's just, you know, coldly saying that he'll just, you know, put Amy down regardless of what Andrea thinks. I, he would not do that in season two. There's just no fucking way he would do that in season two. And, and, and some of that you could chalk up to character development. But I think some of that is just them not really knowing who the hell Daryl is yet. So, yeah, he's just that... Given who who Daryl has become, and given what we kind of know about his character now, I view that as fairly out of character behavior for him. Then it, it's not that I don't think that he would be an asshole, but that's just that's a level of cold assholishness. Unless he's bluffing, which he might be, because one of the things he does is he barks a lot and talks a big game. But if he's being serious there, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't feel quite right to me. And even more when it uh, is revealed that Jim's been bitten and Daryl's like, we should just fucking kill this guy. It's just, he... Especially when I... I, it's, I actually saw the episode a couple of days ago and I might be misremembering this because my memory's terrible, but when I think he's like lunging at Jim with a pickaxe or something, like he wouldn't fucking do that now. And I really find myself wondering, did he mean it? then. And again, this is me talking about Daryl like he's a real person, which he isn't, but did the writers intend us to interpret that as genuine intent, or was Daryl just doing what Daryl does and flailing around and kind of puffing himself up so that he won't have to fight, which is what I headcanon him as doing. I, I headcanon him as being aggressive in conflict situations because he's trying to make it so that he doesn't have to fight, because he really doesn't want to. But yeah, it's would he have actually would he have actually done these things that he's threatening to do? Well, we'll get back to that in the next episode when he uh, you know threatens Jenner with an axe, which is just no. Just, well, Daryl now maybe that's a whole other thing, and we'll get to Daryl now if we ever make it that far. 
but yeah, that that scene, you know, th- th- those couple of scenes, those really gave me pause because I just wasn't quite sure what to think about them. Daryl, when he's watching Carol putting down Ed, is super interesting. There's, that's I think the first moment where we really see like connection between Daryl and Carol, where he's watching her explosion of grief and rage and he's shaken, like he's visibly shaken by it. He's upset by it, but not in a, this is terrible, oh my God way, but like he's seeing something he recognizes. He's seeing something that he understands. Some part of him is responding to that with familiarity. It, it also, I feel like you can kind of see revelation on his face a little bit, which brings me back to a question that I had before, which is how much did Daryl know about this? He had to know that Ed was beating Carol. There's no way he didn't know that. Everybody in the camp knew it. So how much, how much did he, how much did he actually know? To what degree was he kind of pushing it to the side and almost making himself not know, like aggressively telling himself, this is not my problem. This is not my problem. I don't need to think about this. Was he biding his time until they actually ended up turning on the camp and maybe thinking about taking some kind of revenge then? What, what, what was going through his head? He's not a real person. I know this, but, but just thinking about him for a second as if he was, because that's how you have to approach a character sometimes. What the hell was going through his head? Not just in that scene, but through all of this. What did he think about Carol prior to this moment? What did he know about what was happening or was maybe about to happen to Sophia? Why was he just standing back and not doing anything? Did he want to do something? I have to think that he did. So what, what is, what is something revealing itself to him at that moment? Is he forcing himself to confront something in that moment? And how is he carrying that forward into season two? The, you see him in his intensity, in the intensity with which he hunts for Sophia. There's a lot going on there clearly, but, but what else? That's just such an interesting question to me, and it's one that we will probably never get an answer to. And in fact, there may be no real hard answer to it, because again, I think we're dealing with some inconsistent writing here. Okay, more iced tea, and then I'll I'll talk about Glenn and more stuff about burials. So this is, this is a, there's a lot of stuff about saying goodbye to people in this episode, but the centerpiece of it is Glenn's heartbreaking explosion, where he's like, you know, we don't burn the people that are, we don't burn our people, we bury them. We burn the walkers, but we, we give our people a funeral. And he feels it so deeply. And that's, that's, I think, a moment where Glenn really kind of takes his place as the moral center of the show. And it just, uh, God, I fucking love Glenn so much. He deserved so much better. I'm sorry, just moment of rip for Glenn. But yeah, he's, he's, he's revealing something really important about his character there in terms of how much he cares about what he feels is right and about how much he cares about retaining the sense of what's right, even in the face of like the worst possible situation. But the show is also revealing something very important about itself, which is that it regards this as significant shit. It, it, it wants us to understand that in a world that is completely defined by death, how we handle the people that we care about who die means 
everything. It is, in fact, in some respects, more important than staying alive and in how we end up staying alive. Those things are important, too. Those things are also in question, especially in the Gimple era. But it's just, it's, it's so, 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 so central. And it is so clearly articulated there. And it's, it's, like I said, it's in this show's DNA, which is why it stands out so intensely when it doesn't do some form of that, when we get no closure, when we get no form of memorial, nothing. Or it should stand out if you're paying attention. But something else that it made me think of, uh, it's not the first time I've thought of this in burying versus burning. And, and this is something I'll go back to, assuming we get as far as season five, but the moment in Consumed where Daryl is burning the child walkers. First of all, that's one of my favorite moments on the show. We only see a tiny bit of it. But of everything that it implies that happened off screen and what that gesture means to, to Carol. Because you remember, basically Daryl is doing what he doesn't want Carol to have to do. Carol wants to charge in to the shelter where the, um, the part of the shelter where the child walkers are and put them down because she can't stand it. And Daryl's like, you don't have to do this. And then when Carol's sleeping, he goes off and does it himself. Can you just, can we just take a second? Can we just take a second and reflect on what that must have been like for him? Because holy shit, y'all. Daryl cares so much about kids. He cares, he, he, he cares about kids. Everyone, all, all the good people on the show care about kids because kids are the future and yada, yada, yada. But Daryl cares so much about kids because again, Daryl is so much a kid himself. When, when Daryl sees children in danger, he sees something that he wants to protect so much because nobody protected him. And it gives me so many fucking feelings. So when he does that in Consumed, that, I mean, it, it must have just been agonizing for him. But I have to think that it also, not that it felt good, but that he felt like he was performing something that was respectful. You know, he wasn't just doing it so that Carol didn't have to do it, but he was helping those kids. You know, in the worst possible way, he was helping those kids. And he can't bury them because they're not in a situation where they can do that. But that's a scene where I think burning is not like, oh, we're just going to burn these things. Burning is, that is the funeral that he can give them. So that's what he's doing. And he wraps them up in shrouds. And it's not just so that Carol doesn't have to look at them, I, I think. But it's it's a show of respect. So... Burning versus burying is being framed here in a certain way that is not unexceptional. I mean, there, there, there are exceptions to it throughout the show's run, and I think those exceptions are really interesting. So this is a jump forward to something that, again, we'll hopefully get to, but I just it, it hit me super hard, and I just wanted to mention it, that, that fire can be respectful. And in fact, I think it should be. Um, I... I burning burning bodies is is an expediency it's the kind of thing you do when there are a lot of them and you can't bury them all but you know burning but burning bodies also has a very long history of being a, a, a very honorable way of disposing of a body not, not even disposing of a body like you you burn a body as a means of showing respect you funeral pyres are a big thing and i i yeah there's there's more going on here than just burying versus burning it's it's God, how this show deals with death is so interesting. It's something I think the show does much better than the comics do. Much, 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 much better. Partly because I think the writers are trying so much harder and are thinking so much more deeply about this than Kirkman does. 
my Kirkman, my anti-Kirkman bias is, is so hard. <laughs> if you like the comics, I'm super sorry. But if you like the comics, I don't even know why you're listening at this point anyway, given how clear I've made it that I really don't like Kirkman. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, moving on. More, more iced tea and then I'll get to the other stuff. Uh, oh, the... <laughs> The, the part where they're leaving to go to the CDC and Bear plays the adagio from Sunshine. And it's just like, I love Bear McCreary. I absolutely love Bear McCreary. But it, this, is, this was just, this was a moment where it's like, man, don't get out of your skis. This is a bunch of people driving. It's, it's a big moment. They're leaving the camp. And, and it's 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 kind of the moment of their departure onto this road trip that will be all of the seasons because they can't ever stay anywhere for very long. It's just an endless endless kind of epic journey that never ends. But you do it's just they're just driving around in their cars. You don't need music this emotionally heavy and almost bombastic. Bear, just chill, just take a seat, calm down. You don't, yeah, this is, this is overkill. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to Shane. Shane is, okay, for, let me say, Jim, so much love for Jim. He's barely there, but he seems like such a good guy, and, and his death is so beautiful and so sad, and I love the way it happens, because it's just really well done, which, again, I'll, I'll get to in a minute, but how Shane reacts to Jim saying, I want you to leave me behind. What the fuck is even with that? Shane's moral principles are so unevenly applied and so poorly defined. He's, he's, the, the writers cannot decide if he is coldly pragmatic and utilitarian or sort of a romantic hold to your principles no matter what, almost more of a Rick figure. They can't fucking decide. And I don't think that they're trying to purposefully show that Shane himself is inconsistent. I just don't think they're writing him well. Because Shane is like, man, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can live with myself leaving Jim behind. And it's like, you fucking almost killed Rick already. Like, do I think he would have pulled the trigger? No. But you fucking aimed a gun at your best friend and you're being an asshole to Lori and you're beating people up with, you know, are, are, okay, Ed deserved to be beaten up. But, but everybody reacted to Shane like they were already uneasy about Shane. Shane already was maybe revealing stuff about himself that suggested he wasn't super stable. And Shane, Shane has been very, made very plain that Shane is an asshole. He's just, he's bad. Regardless of whether or not the writers meant to do this, Shane is terrible. And all of a sudden, Shane is the one being like, oh, I don't know if I could live with myself if we just left him. When he's clearly dying. Like, you're not going to save this guy. I, I don't know if he thinks that maybe when they get to the CDC, they'll be able to help him. But he's, no, Jim is, Jim is a dead man walking or riding around in an RV. I just, I don't, it's stupid. It's super stupid. I, I, literally everybody else in the group should have had more of a problem with, with leaving Jim on the road than Shane. What the fuck? You could have had anybody else deliver those lines. It would have made more sense if Daryl had delivered those. Well, nah. Nah, especially not after he tried to kill him with a pickaxe. Nah, but definitely not Shane. Definitely not Shane. What the fuck is up with that? Oh, I can't wait till we get to season two, you guys. It's not that Shane's any better there, but at least he's more consistently terrible. 
And there's some parts of season two with Shane that I really do like. Okay, Jim. Saying goodbye to Jim. That is one of the best deaths on the show. I forgot how great it was. It's just, it's beautiful. And before you come at me with, well, Jim didn't get a funeral. We didn't even see Jim die. Fuck you. You're completely not understanding what this is. It's, it's not that Jim, Jim got a goodbye. He got a memorialization. It was a memorialization while he was still alive. It was a choice not to show his death because his death was solitary. That was the whole point. The point was that nobody was with him when he died. And that means that the audience couldn't be with him. We weren't, it, it was important that we not be there. But it was also very important that everybody have a chance to say goodbye to him. His death was just full of closure. It reminded me a lot of Bob's death, you know? In, in terms of everybody having a chance to, to come and say goodbye and say, like, you know, you really, you mean a lot to us and we're sorry that this is happening and we wish you the best, you know, for whatever is after you dying and becoming Walker. And it's just very, it's very respectful. It's very sweet. Jim seems like a sweet guy. He talks about wanting to be with his family, which is just stabbing in the heart. And he, he, they leave him under a tree and on what seems like a nice day. And I think there are worse ways to go out on The Walking Dead. You know, I, I think that one could do a lot worse than that. And through the characters all saying goodbye to Jim, we get to say goodbye. And it is, it feels right. I don't like that he died. I recognize that somebody had to die. So I, I'm not mad that he died. I, I just miss him. Seems like a good guy again. But how it was done was so great. It was a really good death. I think it's one of the, like I said, it's one of the best deaths on the show. Very, very well written. Very well done. Very well acted. And another thing that reveals how much these characters can come to care for each other, which is, that's a, another one of the core themes on the show going forward is how these characters say goodbye to each other when it's time to do that. And like I said, and like I will be saying constantly as, as we continue, why it is so fucking bullshit and weird that that didn't happen with Beth. I, again, like you guys, you have to know if you're not coming to this podcast already knowing me, I am obsessed with this and I will keep talking about it. I'm a person with a wall in my head covered in pictures and connected with pieces of yarn. It's just who I fucking am. But yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good death. Good job. All right, more ice Bunch of kids are playing across the way, being loud. Somebody just ran by. That's what that was, if you could hear it. So, CDC. Jenner. I love Jenner so much. I think a lot of it is that I really love that actor. I, ca I, can't, I can't remember his name, and I cannot remember in this moment where else I've seen him, but I just love him. And he's so likable. And the the series of scenes where you just see his kind of day-to-day -day life in the CDC and just how completely worn down he is. And, uh, you know, until you get to the point where he's like, I think tomorrow I'm gonna blow my brains out. <laughs> it's just like, I love you, man. Like you're the best. And yeah, he and he just continues to be great in the, in the next episode. But it, yeah, it's, I love, this show almost never does this, which is why I love it so much when it does. It's such a great change of pace. I'm glad that they don't do it all the time because it's just not kind of, that's not how the show tells its story. But when the show completely steps away from team family and everybody involved with them, 
and explores the point of view of a completely different character, maybe involving their journey toward an, an interaction with team family, maybe not, but you get you get a very different view of what's been going on since the world fell apart than you've been getting up until this point. And this is the kind of thing that I think that you're going to be you're going to be wondering about in any situation like this. What is going on with the people who are supposedly looking for a solution? You know, we, we we've seen we've seen how the average person has been dealing with this, which is to say poorly. But what is going on with infrastructure that is designed to respond to emergencies like this? We've seen little glimpses of situations where uh, the army tried to get involved and it completely went badly. But that's only after the fact. We're actually seeing it in process here, and it's fascinating. I just absolutely fucking love it. I love, I love that you see that he is, even after all of these weeks, he's still trying. He clearly doesn't even really know why he's still trying. He, I think he's pretty explicit about that. He's just trying because... What other options are there? So when the sample's destroyed, that's when he's like, I literally have no reason to be alive anymore, so I think I'm going to solve that problem very decisively tomorrow. But it's, yeah, he's he's still trying. He's still trying. And in the next episode, of course, you find out some of why he's trying. You find out some of what's motivating him and what a crushing blow it is to him that he loses those samples. It's not just about logistics. It's not just about being able to find a cure. He lost the last part of what was left of the person who meant the most to him. Uh, speaking of saying goodbye to people and memorializing people. I mean, that was fucking terrible. But yeah, it's it's such a... It's so fucking interesting. And it's I, I, I enjoy it so much. And it is also a moment wherein more of the weakness of this show's world building is revealed very starkly because he talks about the virus abruptly going global. Now it's, it's the whole virus thing is stupid. I mean, I'm, it's not, it's not consistent. It's not well articulated. There's a lot about it that doesn't work very well if you think about it for more than about 10 seconds. And what it even means that the disease would abruptly go global. Where did it start? Maybe this is something that you need to read Walking Dead supplemental material to know. I can't be bothered to do that, so I don't personally know. And anyway, you shouldn't have to read supplemental material to find out that kind of detail. But I, I, I'm totally, again, there's, there's a lot here that I'm fine hand-waving. But when I come into stuff like this looking for it, it sticks out at me and it bothers me. What does it mean that it went global? Did it, did it, was it confined to a particular area? Did, did everybody know that when you die, you turn regardless of how you die? Or was that something that it took people a long time to figure out or did know? How do you not figure that out? How, how do you, there's just so much about here that just isn't clear and, and strikes me as not it being purposefully obscured or not the writers going, you don't really need to know this detail. It strikes me as just sloppy. It, and it's, like I said, this is potentially such a strength because this is the kind of thing that I find so interesting. But it is also, and, and can also provide kind of a background for the, the dimensions of this threat. But also when it's not done well and you have to think about it, which I, you know, have been having to do, you just, it's infuriating. I don't know about infuriating. That might be, that word might be too strong, but it's, it's annoying. It's, it bothers me. 
it's a very small moment. It's a small thing. Most people probably wouldn't be bothered by it even if they thought about it. But it's another thing that brings out to me so clearly that when this show takes lunges into hardening its world building, those are some of the biggest potential strong moments and those end up becoming some of the biggest weaknesses. And they're, they're trying to establish something here that ends up muddying the waters, I think, even more in a lot of respects. There are, it, it does set up for the next season, the thing about how, oh, by, oh, yeah, Jenner, Jenner actually does know. It, it, it sets up the, the thing for next season about how, oh, by the way, we all are quote unquote infected. So if you die, even if you haven't been bitten, you'll turn. But it's still just, yeah, there's a, there's a lot here that just isn't answered. And I don't think really is answerable, but I'm, I'm willing to kind of, like I said, I'm willing to hand wave that. It's, but I want to note it because I'm noting my reactions to stuff as I go through this. Quick note, uh, when I, something, okay, step back for a second. Something that has really bothered me about uh, people who think Beth isn't dead and who think she might come back with some kind of a cure. I have long been very open about how I think that's really, really dumb. I think it's I, th it, I think it's stupid because I think it places much too much importance on Beth in general, which is something that Beth fans I think often do anyway. She's a very important character, but like she's not that important. I, I know that's heresy, but like she's not. Sorry, but I'm saying this as a huge Beth fan. But also it it fucks with the place of the zombie virus in this world. It it, it elevates it to a place where it just isn't. I don't think we will ever have a cure. I hope we never do because it will completely turn the focus of the show on its head. And I, what, what I mean by that is that the walkers, in other zombie narratives, the, the virus kind of become, it, it, there is a point, like the, how the virus works, how it spreads, finding a cure for the virus. Finding a cure is usually, I mean, uh, The Last of Us, that's like the whole thing. The last and the last of us places cordyceps very front and center because Ellie's whole point is that she's immune and getting her to the fireflies so that they can find a thing for her ends up being kind of the centerpiece of the whole game or at least it's that's kind of the MacGuffin I guess or Ellie's the MacGuffin no Ellie's not the MacGuffin the the cure kind of is the MacGuffin in a variety of ways but. The point is cordyceps, the cordyceps uh, infection has a much, much different, it has a very different place in The Last of Us than the virus does in The Walking Dead. The walkers are an environmental threat. They're like a storm. They're like an earthquake. They're, they're like climate change. They're, they're, that's all. They're not really even a living, they're not a living part of the environment. They're just a feature of the landscape. And what really made this click for me was that when I was uh, at WizCon and I was hanging out with my friend Jason and we were talking because whenever Jason and I get together, we talk nonstop for hours and hours and hours because it's just kind of how we are. It's, we just get each other going and we go and go and go. And we're also both Walking Dead fans. So I don't remember how we got onto this, Christ knows, but we were talking about how the food chain of monsters works and how Vampires, for example, are apex predators. I mean, they're absolutely apex predators. Really, nothing preys on vampires. Werewolves, maybe, but not really. Werewolves and vampires are natural enemies or something, but they don't like prey on each other, really. So vampires are apex predators. Werewolves are apex predators. Zombies aren't really 
apex predators because they don't need to eat and nothing hunts them. Nothing hunts them and they're just kind of mindlessly consuming machines, but they aren't hunting to hunt. We have absolutely no evidence to speak of at this point that zombies can starve to death. We don't have any real reason to believe that walkers, if they're left alone for long enough, will just die of starvation. Now, that might be the case, and we just haven't seen it yet, but we have nothing at this point, I think, to indicate that that will happen. So zombies might be driven, walkers might be driven by instinct to consume, but they don't need to consume. So werewolves, werewolves supposedly have to hunt. I mean, they're just, they're, I don't know, they're carnivores. They have to hunt. Uh, vampires have to hunt. Vampires need human blood to survive. Walkers don't. Walkers don't need anything. They just exist. Walkers, you could, I, I was thinking about walkers themselves being like a virus, but that doesn't even entirely work either because walkers, viruses are driven to propagate. Viruses' sole purpose is to make more viruses. That's the only reason that they exist and it's the only thing that they do. They make more of themselves. That's, they're not, they're not, viruses aren't really part of the food chain either in a traditional sense, but they are driven by a need to do things. And if they can't make more of themselves, then they die out. It's just, just how that goes. But walkers, I don't think can fairly be said to be driven by exactly the same need because quote unquote, we're all infected. We're all already infected. Regardless of whether or not we're bitten or scratched by a walker, we will all eventually become walkers unless somebody puts us down. The job's done. If the virus is, if the virus is driven to propagate itself, it doesn't need to do that. We're all already infected. Cordyceps, the, the people infected with cordyceps, the whole point is to be able to spread the cordyceps to somebody else because cordyceps is a fungus. It's a living thing. It's a living organism. So when people are infected by it, they're infected by it like an ant would be. And ants infected with cordyceps are driven, you know, to, to behave in ways that will make it more likely for them to spread the cordyceps to somebody else. But that doesn't happen with walkers. So walkers just aren't even, walkers are not even part of the food chain. Walkers do not behave like living organisms. Walkers are just landscape features. Walkers are just environmental threats. And that's cool if what you're doing is telling a story about human beings at the end of the world. That's fine. But that becomes a problem when you start making these weird kind of stumbles into trying to make walkers into something more than that. If you've established so much that they are outside of the main focus of your show or your story or whatever it is, then whenever you kind of grab them and try and drag them back in for a second, it really doesn't work very well. And this is subtle. And I think that you could actually, I mean, you, maybe you don't agree with me. I think you could make arguments that I'm wrong. One could usually do that pretty successfully. But I very much will die on this hill that when this show tries to do world building with walkers, it completely fails because of the groundwork has, the groundwork is not there because of how they have defined what a walker is. If not everybody was infected, then walkers could behave like a virus because they would be driven by propagating themselves. But they don't need to do that. So they're, they're just an environmental threat. That's it. Which again is fine provided that you let them just be that and you don't try to make them into more than that. And 
season one, see the seasons after this, I think get it. And for the most part, they don't touch it. And that's great. But in season one, they're still trying to kind of define how this works. And that means that they're stumbling in directions that they really shouldn't go in. And it, that's something else that's really stood out to me as I've been going through season one as a point of weakness. It's one of the things that makes this, I think, one of the weaker seasons. They just don't quite know what the fuck they're doing. Now, I won't even necessarily fault season one for that because most shows are still finding their voice in season one. Very rarely do shows start out super strong. Uh, they're the, the ones that do, we remember those because they did start out so strong. Like Breaking Bad's first season is fucking unbelievable. Uh, I recall that um, Battlestar Galactica's first season's pretty fucking great, but this this is they're they're still figuring things out. And um, Robert Kirkman did not give them a very strong foundation on which to build anyway. So they're kind of building this thing from the ground up by themselves in terms of what their take on it will be, and uh, they're not doing a great job. So it's one of the reasons why I'm very glad in subsequent seasons they just kind of were like, okay, fuck that, we're kind of. Not only are we not going to touch it, but we are going to touch it at one point with the governor, just to make it very clear that there is nothing here, that this is not worth pursuing, that there's nothing to be found here, that no further experiments along these lines will be fruitful. We can just completely close the book on this and focus on the human beings that are still alive and not so much on the walkers because they ultimately don't matter very much. And that's why a story about a cure would be stupid on this show. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up there. I don't I'm going to try and get the next episode of this up next week, and then we'll be done with season one. Wow. And into season two, which I'm super looking forward to again, because, like, I really like season two. A lot of love for season two. The, the people who hate season two are just objectively not correct. Okay. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys, and thanks for your patience while I worked on getting this thing up. Uh, Again, I don't really fucking owe you anything, but I did say I was going to do this and I want to keep up with it and I'm having a good time and I hope you're having a good time too. Uh, again, if you if you want me to do specific things, if there, is, if there are topics you want me to speak to, if there's stuff that you'd like me to pay close attention to as I go through my rewatch, if you want me to focus on certain things, if you have questions you'd like me to answer, uh, shoot me a line, let me know. Uh, leave a comment on the Podbean site. Shoot me an ask in my Tumblr inbox message me email me uh, tweet at me any any way you want to get in touch with me and just let me know what you think let me know if there's anything i can do to make this more enjoyable for you because it should be fun for all of us thanks so much uh wherever you are i hope you're having a good day i hope you're having a good evening morning whatever time of day it is and take care of yourselves and people you care about and i will hopefully speak to you soon